So church, our text today is going to be 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 and following. Hear the word of the Lord. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, in which you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the word of God, and thank you that you open the word of God, Holy Spirit, to our understanding, and we pray now that you would teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so Paul starts off this passage of 1 Timothy 6 by saying, but, but as for you, O man of God, I love that, O man of God, O woman of God, but as for you, so you, you, he says, you, Timothy, have looked into the belly of the beast. You've seen what this false teaching produces, and because of that, I charge you, I plead with you to fight the good fight of the faith. He said, you, you've seen what these false teachers do. They, they come in, verse 3, they, they, they teach different doctrine that doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. These teachers are puffed up with conceit and they understand nothing. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant frictions. That they teach that the godliness is a means of financial gain. And Paul says that's a lie. Godliness with contentment is great gain. But godliness doesn't mean you're going to be wealthy and healthy. So they, they have fallen into a snare and into a trap that plunge men into ruin and destruction. And because of their teaching, some have wandered from the faith. And they have impelled themselves with many pangs. He says, so, so Timothy, because you've gazed into the belly of the beast and seen what happens when you do this, you flee from that. And, and you pursue the virtues of righteousness, and, which means being a man with an outward behavior that conforms to the standards of God. You pursue godliness, which talks about your inner relationship with the Lord. You, you pursue faith, which is a looking unto Christ. You pursue love, which means you treat people with dignity and you care for them. You, you pursue steadfastness, which means you get up every day and you just do the right thing in the honor in the name of God. And, and you pursue gentleness. Timothy, you, you, you fight the good fight of the faith because you realize that, that, that eternity is at stake, that your legacy is at stake, that your joy is at stake, that your usefulness is at stake. So you fight the good fight of the faith. And the, the word good here uh, means to be harmonious, handsome, or, or glorious. And I've lost my little clicker. So I've got to find it. Excuse me while Easter egg found it. Okay. Uh, John Calvin made this comment. He says, yeah, for, for the purpose of encouraging them to fight such a fight courageously, he calls it good. Therefore, 
It is not to be shunned, but to enter into. And then good means to be useful, to be handsome, to be beautiful, to bring harmony to one's life. It is a good fight. And that's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 9, when he's speaking of people who athletically train hard, which is wonderful for a contest called the Isthmian Games, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, Verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So you run in order to obtain the prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we're going to get an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I, I discipline my body. I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He says, you know, they, they, they train arduously, and it's wonderful, but they get a wreath that's perishable, but we've got something that's imperishable. And he says, therefore, we, we go for it, and we, we fight the good fight, and, and, and we, we take, see, he says, fight the good fight, and he says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. The word for take hold means to grasp as with violence. It's just like you're on the edge of a cliff, 2,000 foot drop, you're hanging there, you slipped, you, you're, your hand is giving out, you're about to fall to your death, and somebody drops a rope from the overpass, and what do you do? No, no thanks, I'm just going to hang out here for a while. No, you grasp it with all of your might. You grasp it violently. That, that's the, the word picture is just, just fight the good fight and take hold of the eternal life that is the life. That, that there's, listen, there's no floating into godliness. You've you got to pursue. There's no floating into godliness. You don't just kind of fall into it. There's a little book that was published in 1978 by two psychiatrists from Dallas named Minrith and Meyer entitled Happiness is a Choice, a Manual on the Symptoms, Causes, and Cures of Depression. And they go through a history of discussion, depression, and as they knew about it in 1978, and talking about the manifestations, and then you get to the last part of the book, the last chapter, and they say this, we're going to offer seven basic guidelines in this chapter that are based on the great commandment where Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And these are two psychiatrists, physicians. Psychiatric practice in Dallas, Texas. They said, if anyone, if any human being chooses to live by these seven basic guidelines, we are convinced that he will go through life without ever suffering any types or any of the pains of depression. Of course, he may have some ups and downs and still experience normal grief reactions, just as all humans do, but he will never, they capitalize the word never, suffer from any symptoms of clinical depression. Stop. I don't agree with that. I, I, I think that's an overstatement. I, I've never been to medical school. I've been on a medical school campus. These are board-certified psychiatrists with an international ministry and teaching. I think that's an overstatement. I think sometimes people struggle with depression who are the most well-meaning saints. But let's say that they're making an overstatement to get your attention. They have my attention. So the, the question I have is, what are the seven things we do? I'm just going to read them out to you. Scattered throughout this book. Number one, they say you must commit your daily life to the purpose of glorifying Jesus Christ. Number two, 
Spend some time each day meditating on God's Word and applying it to your life. Number three, get rid of grudges daily. Ephesians 4.26. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Number four, spend a little time nearly every day getting more intimate with your spouse and your children, your parents, your brothers, your sisters, and other close friends. They should have a high priority. Do all you can to resolve family conflicts. Do all you can within your power. Resolve these conflicts. Number five, spend some time each week having fellowship and fun with at least one or two committed Christians of the same sex. If you are married, have fun with other married couples. In this way, husbands and wives can together benefit from intimacy with others. In other words, join a community group. I added that. That's not in the thing. Okay. Number six, be involved in a daily routine, including work, play, housework, projects that bring about personal satisfaction to you. Be convinced that this routine is God's will and purpose for your life, your way of glorifying Him. And number seven, do something nice for one person every week. This kind deed can be a physical deed, like helping with a chore, or emotional, buying a book, or giving counsel, or a spiritual, having devotions together as you encourage them. Now, what they're saying is, fight the good fight of the faith. That's it. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life that the Lord has extended to you. But you, you fight the good fight of the faith. You, you go forward. You, you, you. See, one of the early, the seven deadly sins was the sin of ascidia, which means boredom or listlessness. And the question is, how do you fight drifting listlessness? Just kind of, just creeping listlessness, creeping inactivity, bored. How do you fight? Here, here's the answer. You fight the good fight of the faith. You live as a called out person. You realize that you've been called into fellowship with, the God, with God. He's given you the Holy Spirit, and he's given you gifts to use as a steward under his lordship. So I'm going to take the time we have left this morning and ask this question based upon the text. How do we fight the good fight of the faith? Number one, if we're to fight the good fight of the faith, we must have a flee and a pursue mentality. Now, all too often, we, we say to people, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. Good, good to a point. But it's got to be flee and pursue. Paul says, you know, flee these things, flee this erroneous teaching, flee this dissension, flee this love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil, flee from this, flee from this, and pursue the six virtues, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Now, just for example, steadfastness. You get up every day, and you get on your knees and you commit your way to the Lord. And you pray, our Father, who art in heaven, you get the glory. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done in my life, in my relationships, in the way I treat people on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, give me this day my daily bread. I'm looking to you. Give me the energy I need. Give me the response motive I need. Give me the care I need. Give me this day my daily bread. And Lord, forgive me of my sins as I continue to walk under the cross and I forgive other people. And lead me not into temptation. I'm surrounded by evil and evil forces and darkness. Lord, don't let me go there. Guard me. 
but deliver me from evil. For, for yours is the kingdom and the, and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You're just steadfast. You're, you're just, you just get up every day. That's the key to godliness. You say, God, you get the glory. And then I would almost argue that this, the, the, the five virtues culminates in number six, gentleness. There's a call to arms, a call to be gentle. See, chapter 6, verse 3 says that these, these men, these false teachers, are, are filled with a puffed-up conceit and a vainglorious spirit. They love controversy. And then when he talks about the qualifications for elders or pastors, in 1 Timothy 3, 3, he says that uh, an elder or pastor is, is not to be a drunkard, not a violent man, but a gentle man, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. In other words, one of the chief qualities for being a leader in God's church is you're gentle and you're approachable and you're not violent. And so you, 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 you pursue these things. And the question I ask myself is, am I really pursuing, am I running after these things? Am I going hard after these things? Number two, if I'm to fight the good fight of faith, I must understand that I'm called into fellowship with the Lord. And that's been the presence of, of many witnesses. In other words, I have a legacy. He says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, that I've received a legacy of faith and I'll pass it on. And, and I've, I've been given the Holy Spirit, I've been gifted by God, and therefore I live with joyful responsibilities. Then when you realize you're made in the image of God, and God has called you into fellowship with himself, and he's gifted you by the Holy Spirit, and, 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 and that everything is under his oversight and his lordship, and you understand the stewardship of life. Life is filled with dignity. See, a steward, again, is one who's appointed to give oversight to a provision who in turn must give an account. Your life is a stewardship. Your life is a stewardship. And I, I will give an account of the way I, that I live my life. Now, now recently, I started, I'm in the middle of season one of this show called Blue Bloods. If you've never seen it, it's a TV show. Um, Blue Bloods. Um, starring Tom Selleck, who turned 70 years old this year. Can you believe that? Magnum is 70 years old. Some of you are older. 70. Anyway, um, people told me through the years, you'd really like Blue Bloods, but it came on at 10 o'clock. I'm asleep by 10 o'clock. I am out by 10 o'clock at night. So I couldn't watch it, but now I've been watching these DVDs. I really like it. Uh, Tom Selleck is the police commissioner of New York City. Uh, his last name is Reagan. He's got a picture of Theodore Roosevelt in his office because TR was at one time police commissioner of New York City. Uh, he's got... Uh, Two sons and a daughter. His daughter is DA, and his two sons are both New York policemen, and his dad lives with him. His dad is former police commissioner of New York, and the, uh, he's, they've lost one son who was killed in action as a policeman in New York. But they, they end every show around the table, eating together, praying. It's just good. It's just, it's a, and it's, it's all about honor. It's about being a person of integrity and steadfastness. It is just good. But a lot of what they do is because they're Reagans. And time after time, they'll say something about you Reagans. One show they said to the oldest son, do you Reagans ever give up? And he says, no, we Reagans never give up. And I thought, 
I'm a child of the King. I have the imprint of Jesus upon my life. I've received the Holy Spirit of the living God. I should live with a sense of calling and destiny that exceeds familial longings, ethno, uh, ethnicity, uh, socioeconomic longings, geographical location. I am a child of God. I should live like it. I've been called unto God. I bear his name. And that involves a flea and a pursue lifestyle, and it involves understanding that my calling has given me an incredible responsibility that shot through with joy. So, so you understand this flee and pursue, this pr pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. So I'm going to talk about that by making an application, and I'm going to take a detour off the interstate and it'll be about a four or five minute detour, but bear with me and I'll come back on the interstate in about five minutes. But I just, I just want to talk about flee and pursue, about a cultural phenomenon in our day. So this weekend, there's a movie released entitled Fifty Shades of Grey. And um, two years ago, somebody said to me, there are women reading this book. I didn't realize a hundred million copies of this book have been sold. And it's, it's a, I'm going to try to keep this PG but it's a story. I haven't read the book. I have, I'm not going to see the movie. I've read brief statements about the plot line that goes like this. Um, there's a young woman who's pure, and she's introduced to this older man, and he takes her into a twisted, perverted sexual lifestyle. And it's called Fifty Shades of Grey. The main character's name is Grey. Uh, interesting, I, I went to a website yesterday that reviews movies, and it's just a secular website, and they, out of five stars, they gave this movie a half star. Now, filming you eating your breakfast would get one star. You know what I mean? I mean, just having the family sit around talking about what are we going to do this week is one star. So if it's a half star, you realize it's really a pretty bad movie. So I, I went, and I just pulled off some uh, statements. These are I intentionally did not go to Christian websites. I went to just general websites. This is from, an, from a national syndication. It says, The popularity of Fifty Shades of Grey among women sends a message to men that unrestrained domination, this was about a man dominating a woman, is what women want. And educated by pornography, they know how to do it. A majority of men, especially younger men, have been getting a regular diet of this kind of degradation through porn for years. In it, women are treated like animals and objects. And I'm leaving out some of his words. But, but, but I read that, and one of the questions I have about this whole issue is, uh, where are the spokesmen, the female women who have been given platforms, like Oprah, and some of these other women saying, you know, this, this, is, this is horrible. This degrades women. This is, this is and it's just, it's just sick. Nobody's saying that. I'm going... Where, where are they? Uh, that's my question. Maybe you know the answer to that. So I went, I went to another website, and this is what this, this guy says. He's a very good article. He says that uh, he said he, he read the book, 100 million sold. He's read one of them. He said that, uh, that the two characters, the two main characters, are two of the most vapid, one-dimensional, and unsympathetic characters ever drawn from a book that when you actually read it, you discover is basically a plotless, poorly written, 500-page glorification of misogyny, or women hatred, and domestic abuse based around a bunch of weird and unpleasant sexual experiences. And then he goes on and says this, and this is where I, I want to take issue with him. After a while, 
excuse me, after all, while most of the book's readers quickly skim through the awful grade two level prose, immersing themselves in a word, world of weird sexual fantasy for a day or two before tossing it aside and never giving it a second thought, dot, dot, dot. Here's, here's what I take, I take issue. I don't think you forget it. I think we have to, I would, I would ask you, I would plead with you to tell your contemporaries, don't go to the movie, don't read the book. That's a problem with pornography. I say this to men all the time. The, the more you go deeper into pornography and the weirdness of it, the, the more you fill on a door that's very hard to close. And I would say that if you, if you go to places like this, it is hard to close the door. Uh, I, I read websites that say, should men and women, married couples, should they watch pornography together to enhance their sex life? That is from the pit of hell. That's from the pit of hell. And if you want to be sexy to your husband and sexy to your wife, you cherish them and you love them and you care for them and you pray for them and you believe in them and you brag on them. That's sexy. And that's really sexy. So I, I would just, uh, don't, don't, don't go there. And while I'm on this side road, let me hit a couple of other things. Again, go back to the interstate and well, just bear with me. So, so I'm, I'm reading this and I'm just thinking about the incredible changing landscape. And I thought about the number of people who, who I, I talked to who are professing Christians who are living together before marriage. I'm going, don't do that. Just don't do that. Get married or break up for a while, get your head cleared, then get married. But, you know, people say to me, we're going to live together to see if we're compatible. Let me tell you, you're not. You're, just, you're not. I mean, you are. Come on, you're not compatible. And if you've been married more than two months, you said, you're, see, that's, that's nervous laughter. See? <laughs> see, nervous laughter means he's right, but I'm afraid to laugh too loud because my spouse may hit me. Okay? If you've been married more than two months, you realize we're not compatible. See, that's why we teach, the Bible teaches, we, believe, we affirm, affirm historically that, that divorce can be, uh, is allowed, we believe, in the case of adultery or willful desertion where there's no reconciliation. But other than that, you're together. And so when you're together, you have to work things out. I mean, I meet people all the time that say, no, we're going to be married as long as we meet each other's needs. I don't know how anybody ever stays married. I'm married to a wonderful woman. But good grief, that's a lot of pressure because I, I don't meet all of Sarah's needs. That may shock you. So, so, so when you get married, you need a magnet to draw you together, and the magnet is Jesus. Be a worshiper of Christ. Glory in the greatness of Christ. And church, see, because of the cascading darkness, you need the church. You need the Word of God. You need godly relationships. Some of us are older. Remember that, that, that years ago, the, the cultural standard was not 50 shades of gray. It was leave it to beaver. Remember that? My three sons. And if you want to get wild and crazy, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. We're a long way from that. And you need the body of Christ. You need brothers and sisters who say to you, a pox on that house. If you don't have that, it's tough. Oh, it's tough. It's tough anyway. So now I'm going to get back on the interstate. That's a side road, but it was kind of an application. So let's keep on going. Uh, number three, 
If I'm to fight the, the Christian life well, I've got to realize that I've been charged. Paul says this, I love this. I charge you, which means to command with great force. Doesn't say, I suggest. He doesn't say, I kind of sort of think that maybe. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to everything and of Jesus Christ who made the good confession before Pontius Pilate to keep this commandment unstained and free from reproach. I charge you. I, 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 I plead with you. I, I, I strongly command you. And so I, I just, I read that and I think, you know, Paul, Paul always makes a beeline to the greatness of Christ. Always. I'm reading a journal this week about Muslim theology, what Muslims believe, and, 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 and Muslim people believe that, that there's a God who is holy and really kind of undefinable, and that this God is wholly removed, and to earn his favor, you work real hard, and even when you die, you have no idea if you've ever gained his favor until you wake up in judgment or in paradise. But you work and you work and you work, and this God uh, can never be truly known. Uh, and, and to say that God would become a man is the ultimate sin in Islamic theology. It's the ultimate sin. And I read that and I think, Lord, don't let me ever get over the glory and the greatness of God becoming a man whose name is Jesus. Don't let me take that for granted. So, so when Paul is charging people with this holistic call to arms, he runs straight to the example of Christ. And I was, I was reading Luke 5 recently, and it's a well-known story. Jesus is teaching, and it says he saw two boats by the lake. The fishermen had already gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. They'd been fishing all night long. They were cleaning up and getting into one of the boats, which was Peter's. He asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. It was a natural amplification system. Bounced off the water. They could hear. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon Peter answered, Master, teacher, rabbi, that's what master means, we have toiled all night and took nothing but at your word I will let down the nets. You don't have to be a great intuitive understanding of dialogue to see that Peter is here saying, you got to be kidding me. I'm a master fisherman, as was my father and my father's father. I've been on the cover of Sea of Galilee fishing three times in the last two years. I know fishing. It's part of my guild. You're a carpenter. But teacher, because you said it, I will do it. And you know what happens. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Every fish in the Sea of Galilee jumped in those nets. It's amazing. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at the feet of Jesus, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord, O Adonai. 
See, it's a long cry from teacher to God. He saw a brief glimpse of the glory of Christ, and he was undone. And I, I read that, and I say, Lord, don't let me get over the fact of the glory of Jesus. If I'm going to fight the Christian life well, if I'm going to take hold of eternal life, I've got to be saturated with the greatness of Christ. John Owen, my favorite Puritan, said this about this concept. He said, he said, he said, he said I plead with you, died in 1688. I, I plead with you to get an experience of the power of the gospel on your own hearts and on your profession. If you do not, it will be an expiring thing. So, so, is the gospel fresh and real to you? If it's not, it's going to be an expiring thing. And I say, God, do not let me get over the glory of the cross. I, I, I charge you, and then very quickly, number four, if I'm to fight the Christian life well, it says here, until the appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. A great day is coming when I will give an account. Westminster Confession of Faith in the sermon guide says that it's going to be at a proper time, and because God wants us to live with readiness, He hasn't made that time known to anybody. So I live this day in light of that day, realizing that this day could be that day that I will give an account to the Lord. And, 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 and I, there are many noble-minded people around me who do not have this concept. They're noble-minded people, but they don't understand the gravity and the glory of the gospel. I've got to rehearse in my mind the gravity and the glory of the gospel. And I've got to live that way. So I say, fight the good fight of the faith. Take over the eternal life to which you're called. This past uh, Wednesday, we had a a big banquet and it was wonderful and there was a man who was in town and uh, he went to this church 20 years ago and they moved and they were our neighbors and kind of kept in touch through the years and he happened to be in town so he came and we were talking and he's pursuing the Lord and he's a really fine guy and as we were talking he said you know is that um, is that short hairdresser still alive. She was so kind to us. Those of us who are old, older in this church, talking about Eleanor Johnson. I said, no, no, she, she died a few years ago. She went to be with the Lord. and He said, yeah, she was, so, she was really special. I said, boy, was she. And I, and I thought about being in the kingdom of God. And, and just, just real quickly, Eleanor was, was from Kentucky, no education to speak of. And she was short. In the last 10 years of her life, she got shorter every year, you know. But what a godly woman. She was an international traveler. To my knowledge, the only time she ever traveled outside the U.S. is when she went on a mission trip to Moldova, I think. Uh, she, she walked around with a Bible, with one of these funky crochets that women do. On the outside of the Bible had handles. And inside the Bible were, were napkins, and Kleenex because when she prayed for people she cried and I thought yes yeah, she was a short nice hairdresser with not much education but in God's kingdom she was a general an admiral she had a flag she was a flag officer you know and she lived with a sense of responsibility and calling and that's what I need to do that's what stewardship means so I Church, fight the good fight of the faith.
take hold of eternal life to which you've been called and which you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to everything of Jesus Christ who gave his good confession before Pontius Pilate to keep this unstained and unsullied until the coming of the Lord. Amen. Well, let's, let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, we ask that by your indwelling power that comes from the throne room of God and the personal work of the Holy Spirit, that you would give us hearts that flee from the things that were mentioned in the first part of 1 Timothy 6, and that we would really pant after and run after the six character virtues Paul mentions. Uh, righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would show us that we have been called and because we're made in your image and we are, are people of yours that we have incredible dignity and we have an incredible responsibility. Uh, so show us that. Show us, Lord, uh, please, what it means to have the family likeness of Christ stamped upon us. Uh, show us what it means to live today in light of that day, knowing that this day could be that day. Uh, so let us live with sobriety and joy and laughter and trust, um, and let us be your people. Uh, magnify your name in us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray. Lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much.